Hello, Rachna. Welcome to the, the podcast, the Islam Unraveled podcast for the Muslim community of British Columbia. We really appreciate you joining us and taking your time out and your busy schedule to, to, to speak with us. Thank you, brother. It's such a pleasure and I think uh, an honor for me to be on this platform and uh, to talk to you. Thank you again. And and you were you also spoke at our event on January 29th, uh, which uh, went very well in our community. We've had about 30,000 views on all the different Wonderful. platforms. Wonderful. And, and we really appreciated you representing Premier Horgan and, and the, the provincial government to, to share your, your solidarity with, with our Muslim community. Thank you so much. Anytime. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor. And, and uh, can I call you, uh, what would be the best way to, uh, like I know with the, the protocol uh, would- uh, No, no, just call me Rachna, that is fine. <laughs> okay, thank you. So Rachna, with regards to your background, for those that aren't aware of, of your position in government or, or your background, maybe you could explain that you are, again, the, the Parliamentary Secretary for Anti-Racism uh, Issues in, in the province. Perhaps you could explain that role and the, the mandate and the work uh, in, in this role that you have. I would love to. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, I'm Rachna Singh, uh, people who don't know me. I'm MLA for Surrey Green Timbers, first got elected in 2017 and then re-elected in the last uh, provincial election in October, 2020. And uh, with that, after that election, I, I'm extremely honored that Premier Horgan uh, gave me, appointed me as the parliamentary secretary for anti-racism initiatives. It's the first time that we have this role in British Columbia. And uh, I would say that uh, this role has emerged with uh, uh, obviously uh, government's uh, a strong stand against racism. It has emerged out of that, but also with all the advocacy work that community organizations, like organizations like Islam Unraveled and other grassroots organizations that have been working for many years to create, uh, to create more awareness about this issue, about racism, about bigotry, about Islamophobia, uh, about hate uh, as such. And uh, so uh, uh, really, really honored to be taking on this role. And uh, with that, I would say uh, that this, uh, although I am the parliamentary secretary for anti-racism, but what I see in our uh, government's mandate and uh, under the leadership of Premier John Horgan, that he has made sure that every cabinet minister, every parliamentary secretary, every minister of state has this in their mandate letter, the anti-racism, to work towards anti-racism in their mandate letter. So it is not just coming from my portfolio, it is coming from, it is, a, it is sector wise and it is, it's a government's initiative. Uh, so a lot of work ahead of us in my role. Uh, I will uh, talk about, uh, we know how racism affects us, uh, how uh, the, uh, it is, how it hinders us, how it blocks so many people to fully be uh, representative or fully be part of the society, this, this beautiful province that we live in. And uh, we know about the systemic racism that has existed for centuries. It is the uh, colonial, I would say colonial residue. Uh, and uh, uh, it is so imbibed in our system. Uh, but the events, the global events of the last year, uh, especially with the Black Lives Matter, uh, with coronavirus and the, and the rise in the hate crimes, all those things that have 
they have brought the issue of racism on the forefront. And uh, the issue that like many people, the normal people, the average people, the media was not talking about before, but now they are. And uh, it is good in that way because now we, we are fighting with racism uh, hands on. And uh, uh, in my role, uh, uh, one very important thing that we plan to do is bringing in the anti-racism legislation. It would be the first time in the history of British Columbia that that kind of that kind of legislation would be brought in. Um, and but uh, uh, along with that, we have other many initiatives. Um, and uh, as we go uh, forth, we will talk more about it. But one important issue that we are tackling is a collection of the race-based data. Uh, for a lot of people, uh, these this terminology sometimes is uh, is not an easy terminology. So I would try to break it down into easier language. Uh, when I talk about race-based data, right now, whenever we are collecting any kind of information, it does not talk about uh, the race. It does not talk about the ethnicity. It is like a, uh, it will take, it will talk about the gender. It might, it will sometimes take the, obviously a lot of times take your age um, uh, demographic, but not the race. It doesn't talk about the ethnicity. If you are a, for example, if you are a Muslim, if you are a Sikh, if you are uh, an Asian, uh, and uh, uh, or are you black? So that thing is missing in the data being collected in British Columbia at this time. And what we have noticed, and it has been brought forward by a number of community organizations, it has, especially with the COVID situation, it has been made very clear the gaps that lack of data is creating uh, because um, COVID we know affects all of us equally, uh, but um, the effect of COVID uh, is very disproportionate among the uh, among the communities that are more marginalized, the communities that are more oppressed. Those can be indigenous communities, those can be black communities, those can be communi communities that have uh, more people of color in them. Uh, so that's why it is becoming very, very important. It, it has been everywhere I'm talking, every person I'm talking to, it, they are making it very clear about collection of that data. So that is one of the major tasks that as a parliamentary secretary I'm undertaking, uh, we would be starting the consultations on that very soon with the stakeholder organizations, uh, with the community organizations to how to collect this data uh, so that we can, after the collection of the data, it would be possible to bring in the policies to fill in those gaps, those barriers. And, and and that that is very powerful and thank you very much and and to the the premier Horgan with this vision of the team focused on on this very important topic now Rachna your your journey is is an amazing one coming from India and and being active in in societal issues there and then coming to Canada and now being actually an elected member of government within a short period of time it's it's very uh commendable and a great accomplishment and it just speaks to your your passion and and maybe if you could talk about how how did you come into this this passion for this work for community and and helping uh people that are oppressed uh no uh i um uh, I would say uh, a lot of times it's, it's in your value system. It is how you are brought up, uh, Brother Tariq. And uh, um, the family that I came from was, uh, 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 although none of us were uh, like in the political 
office, um, uh, but we were very politically active, very politically aware society, uh, family. And from my childhood, I remember talking about uh, how um, even living in India, um, when uh, we were seeing the disparities, we were seeing like that how not everybody was equal. There is a, we know that in India, we have the caste system issue that was discussed very openly in my family. It was like how, uh, and uh, not only the caste system, but also the classism, uh, which is very prevalent. And I would say it would be same for the, uh, for, uh, for our neighboring country, Pakistan. Um, and uh, so that is what I was hearing and always hearing from my parents, uh, especially my father, my grandfather about working uh, in a way that we are able to reduce that oppression how we can be a strong ally. So that was taught to me very, very early on. And, um, uh, and as I, I said, very politically aware family, we were always interested in like who's running for, uh, 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 which kind of representatives we want, people uh, like representatives who would think about people, would people, would keep people first, rather than like the representatives who are just thinking about themselves. So that was made very clear. When I came, moved to uh, Canada in 2001 with my young family, with my husband and my two-year-old son, uh, I brought that system, uh, value system with me, that passion with me, um, and but never thinking that I would ever uh, get uh, get so active in the in politics. And uh, I always say this about, uh, especially women and women of color, they never think themselves in this role. Even however active they have been, how much passion they have, they never actively think about this uh, role. Uh, they don't see themselves in this role. And I, I was in the same situation. Uh, I became member of NDP very early on. Uh, I started volunteering uh, with, uh, with the political party with different uh, candidates, uh, especially in the Surrey area, but never even then, never thinking myself in that role. So that when this opportunity came to me in 2017, for the two, 2017 election, I was taken by surprise. Uh, so for, for my first reaction was, no way, I cannot do this. Uh, so if it was not my family who had prompted me, who would who motivated me to take on this role, I would have declined it. So, but I'm really glad that they were like strong friends, strong family people who really pushed me towards it. And uh, here I am. And uh, uh, I think I consider politics as, as a bigger platform. Uh, these were the things that what I'm doing now, I was always doing it. I was always speaking about the underprivileged. I was always trying to bring people up, whether those were, uh, that was during the, my time with Canadian Union of Public Employees when I was the uh, their national rep, or as a community activist. I was always talking about equal, uh, uh, more equality, more just society. And, uh, but platform, uh, the politics, it definitely gives you a bigger platform. People know me more. My ideas reach out to bigger populations. So I, that way, I think I'm, I have been very, very privileged to have this opportunity uh, in such a short time. Absolutely. And, and also, I, I saw that you, you also have worked in the space of alcohol and addiction and drug addiction. And, uh, and you may be aware that the Muslim community, uh, many stakeholders and many organizations have formed uh, the Muslim Care Center with the Muslim Food Bank. And that is 
largely giving food on the downtown east side, just like uh, uh, the, the C community also gives food on the downtown east side to the people that are in need. And this is the center of the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And part of what we did as a community was to also bring uh, professionals that are counselors and peer support and and uh, addiction support people and medical doctors that can help with uh, methadone and suboxone and other ways to help people off addiction, but also uh, counselors and peer support just to speak with them and help with mental health issues. And and it seems like obviously this is also a passion of yours and and people that are afflicted by racism or you know, as an example, Muslim women that wear hijab, as soon as they walk out the door, uh, they are uh, subject to a certain uh, bias uh, by some people. And and same with people of color, as soon as we walk outside, people may perceive us in, in different ways. And and because mental health is, is tied into, you know, how society and, and how people feel that society is treating them, and mental health and addiction can be intertwined with racism, so please let's talk about that work with addiction and 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 the work that you've done in that space. Yeah, no, very very important topic, brother. Uh, especially now in the time that we we are seeing that uh, we are de uh, dealing with two uh, two crises, like it is a COVID crisis, but then like a very uh, uh, on the similar lines we have like opioid crisis, and we have seen so many people dying, and especially last year has been very very tragic in that direction uh very and, sad and, and and sorry to interrupt more people died of opioid overdoses than the coronavirus in british columbia absolutely and that is that is very heartbreaking and um, also a um, lot of things attached with it a lot of uh, issues with it a lot of times we think about when we think about opioid crisis we think about the downtown east side or we think about like some places like where that is the area where that exists yes definitely and those people definitely need our help uh, but it is like our regular people who are dying of opioid crisis uh, opioid crisis is a big big issue in my community of Surrey, but we don't see it being talked about as openly as we will talk about COVID 19 and a lot of stigma still attached with it, um, with mental health as such. Uh, we talk about all of our, uh, I know in my our community, we are so good at talking about our health issues, whether it is diabetes, it is heart condition, it is anything to do with our physical health. But when it comes to the mental health, we always uh, try to downplay it. Even with depression, like I remember uh, when I was doing, uh, when uh, I had just done my master's in psychology, um, uh, while uh, back home in India, people would say, oh, wh what is the issue? I don't think it is just uh, people just try to pretend that they are depressed. It is just like if they just can just get out of it, not realizing that it is a real ailment. It is something very, very real that people are experiencing and not understanding their issue. Um, and that still persists. Like 20 years on, I see the sim similar mentality still going in the South Asian populations that they won't, uh, if they're, uh, they have anybody affected by mental health, they will never talk about it. They will always try to hide it. And, uh, and even worse with the, uh, with the addiction issues. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of resources and with the, uh, but how to seek that resources. And that's why it's very important when you talk about racism, First of all, there is a stigma attached to it, but then also we have to need to have the culturally sensitive resources available as well. So uh, what I, we have done, I would say uh, that as a government that we have taken this issue very seriously, uh, appointing a minister 
just spearheading this this issue uh, uh, a ministry just um, assigned to this issue uh, that was uh, something we uh, i think british columbia is the only province that has a, a ministry uh, a standalone ministry just uh, dedicated to mental health and addictions so i think that says a lot about a lot about the government's commitment but it is um, government will do its part uh, a lot I, and i say about a lot of things uh, uh, I say that about racism also, uh, that government will do their part, but it is like government won't be able to do it alone without the community help. And uh, like what you, the examples that you have given about the Muslim community coming together and finding out resources, helping the people, uh, creating more awareness. This is what we need. And I know in our own South Asian community, uh, overall, we have quite a few co community organizations that are working towards it. And that's the kind of initiatives we need. More and more people talking about it, more and more people creating that kind of awareness, making it as like a general topic that can be discussed with no stigma, with no shame. And uh, um, and I'm really thankful uh, 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 what uh, our Muslim brothers and sisters have done in this. And also my uh, the Punjabi community as, as a whole has come together to fight this. We have still have a long way to go uh, to deal with this issue, to fight this crisis. It's really sad, especially with the toxic uh, drug supply that we have on the streets and with the isolation that has come along because of the COVID. Earlier people would do uh, would do the intake in groups. Now they're doing it themselves. And they're just, that's why there are more people dying because they're alone when they're doing it, the overdose, and nobody there to help them, nobody there to assist them. But this can be, I just want to really emphasize, this can be our brother, our sister, our father, mother, anybody. And we have to see it from that lens. If somebody we know is struggling, seek out help for them. Uh, don't be, and there are so many resources <clears throat> in Vancouver, in Surrey area, in all the places that we have our communities, very strong representation of our communities. So uh, please go out and seek out the resources. Agreed. And, and what we did, like you said, it's taboo in uh, to bring up topics of mental health and uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction in, 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 in religious and community uh, uh, ways. And as you know, with, with the churches, the synagogues, the temples, the mosques being closed, that social connection and that social community is, hasn't really been there for, for, for quite a long time. And the people are feeling isolated. And before the pandemic, what we were doing was we were doing every month we were at a different mosque with with actually and I, I would call them heroes the Muslims who are former addicts drug addicts and alcoholics to tell their story and and as you know it is a taboo subject and most people don't want to admit that they had these problems and when we would speak to them I was like are you okay being public about your problems with addiction and they go if we can just help one person to save them from going through what we went through, it's it's okay for us to put our face out there and our name out there because we don't want people to go through what we did. And so we were in in literally booked from uh, every month at a different uh, mosque to to kind of really be uh, engaging our community. And we had no usually in community work. There's a lot of criticism for different things, but this specific issue, there wasn't criticism. I think everyone knew somebody, either a family member or a friend, that had drug or alcohol or mental 
health issues and there's a, a an overwhelming support and so it, it does require it's not just the government it, it requires the community working together in multiple ways and then we also brought professionals that were uh, licensed counselors and and addiction support youth workers to to be there as a resource for those that wanted it and then the other thing we started was the first 12-step uh, program and Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous mm -hmm. program for the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. And that's been going on virtually now. And, mm -hmm. and again, very great work. And, and a lot of our people in all these uh, kind of addiction and mental health supports have worked with, again, the Punjabi Sikh community, the greater Christian community on all these initiatives. And, and so it, it takes a team, it takes a village, it takes all Absolutely. of us working together and and now this bring, brings the next topic like with with the the uh the pandemic and uh, and obviously uh the vaccines and possibly opening the the places of worship where are we at with the government um, for for uh for for the next possible steps uh as you know uh, uh what the premier has said and what the health minister has said uh that everybody, every British Columbian who wants a vaccine will get the vaccine. And it is just like the, with the supply now becoming uh, like easing up. Um, so, uh, and it will go into the community now, the vaccination. Right now it is, uh, uh, it is done by the health authorities, but it will go out uh, once um, the general population, it is the turn of the general population to be vaccinated, it will go to the community. And we will be looking at the community health, community resources to roll out, roll out that vaccine because it's going to be a major, major project. Uh, so taking the help, as you talked about the opioid crisis, uh, the, all the communities coming together and fighting it. Same with the vaccine, vaccination rollout. And I think uh, we as a community will have to come together uh, we'll have to open up our spaces, uh, whether it is our gurdwaras, our mandirs, our masjids, our community centers, our nonprofit organizations, any places, uh, because it won't be up to, it won't be feasible for just for the health authorities uh, to uh, <clears throat> to do this rollout, to do the vaccination thing. And uh, I remember coming from India and we used to have this strong drives, uh, of the polio drives, um, going and uh, from the small communities to the large communities and uh, and every place every place i remember whether those were our schools uh, those were our gurdwaras uh, our religious institutions were opened up to do that campaign and i am seeing the similar i am i see a lot of similarity between the these two um, and uh, that's what we will need all the community help first of all creating the awareness that this vaccination uh, uh, that anybody, uh, I, I encourage people to go for the vaccination because we have seen the results uh, that uh, the people who have already been vaccinated, how it has increased their immunity. And uh, so first of all, creating that awareness that this vaccination process, uh, uh, this is for their benefit and uh, people should be encouraged to do it. And then also uh, when the, the, the rollout is happening, creating those spaces uh, whatever it can be, whether it is gurdwaras, mandirs, as a, a masjid, as I said, opening up those places uh, to make it more easier, more faster, because we we everybody wants to live a normal life here in, uh, uh, not just here in British Columbia, but all over the world. So sooner we do the vaccination, uh, the more immunity that we create in our communities, the one step, it brings us one step closer to the life that we are striving for.
Agreed. And and the premier did have a, a forum where faith-based leaders and community leaders uh, were consulted on, on uh, these uh, teleconference calls that was moderated by members of, of the provincial government. And that was much appreciated. They wanted everyone's input, uh, concerns, uh, worries, and input. And uh, and it was uh, in, in, in the calls that uh, I attended, uh, the, the Christian community, Jewish community, Black community, it was very comprehensive. So I will say the premier uh, really wanted layered consultation with the community to really uh, uh, get the the, the strategy uh, for vaccinations in the right manner. Now, um, in terms of possible openings for the places of worship, uh, in, in I, I know with the with the the pandemic, uh, do we have any possible timetables, or is it just dependent on you know how uh, the metrics of the coronavirus uh, uh, infections and and fatalities? Um, what are the targets or plans possibly? from a provincial level to possibly see places of worship uh, open again. And one thing I would really like to mention here, Brother Tariq, is that how the community has supported, how they have cooperated uh, when the provincial orders came uh, uh, from a provincial health officer about uh, closing these places or uh, limiting uh, the number of people who can visit, how the, uh, the community cooperated. I, I, I'm just amazed by that. And I've seen it in my, in my community of Surrey, uh, where we have such a diverse population who, for, for them, for a lot of them, uh, these places of worship are not just like for the worship. It is like more like their community center, more like a place where they could get that social interaction, uh, uh, like a place of refuge for a lot of people. But how these, all these organizations came together to help the province uh, in combating uh, COVID. Like uh, 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 they came up with very, very innovative ideas. And uh, so I'm really, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I would really like to thank all of them. And uh, as um, uh, we are looking, uh, everything that we have done here, uh, COVID related, uh, is, uh, is science-based. Like we are looking at our data, and according to that, that we have made any decisions. And they are not political decisions, they are deci decisions based on science. And that's why it's always uh, our provincial health officer, Bonnie Henry, uh, uh, taking the lead in this and uh, uh, the province following her orders. So I'm uh, really hoping, like with the, especially in the recent uh, days, the numbers, uh, the decline in numbers, the, that's a very, very positive sign. And I heard, I did hear from uh, uh, Dr. Henry a few weeks ago that in if the numbers remain the way they are, um, uh, like if they keep on going down the way they are going now, there's a big possibility of opening up, uh, relaxing some of the measures in the in the religious organizations. So those would be the first step towards opening up. Rather than we know that lot, like uh, one thing is very clear that this is most of the cases are coming from the social interactions. So they will, even when they open up, there would be some restrictions, but there's a very high possibility of some kind of uh, religious gatherings to happen, uh, but um, with the COVID guidelines. Thank you. And, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll know sooner. I, I think with the vaccine uh, rolling out and uh, infections going down, hopefully it'll be sooner than later. 
Um, now, another matter um, that's community related um, in terms of what's happening in India with the farmers and, and what have you, maybe for those that aren't aware of this important issue, maybe you could explain what is happening and, 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 and you know, the protests that are happening in Surrey. Um, if you could maybe describe what the issue is and, 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 and the protests and, 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 and just to elaborate for our listeners that this important uh, area of concern. Yeah, uh, a really concerning issue uh, for for the diaspora, uh, the Punjabi diaspora here in British Columbia. Uh, for the, uh, uh, I, I won't get into the details of the bills that were passed um, uh, because I'm not an expert on that. Uh, but there were three farm bills that were brought up by the uh, Indian government, uh, and they were passed um, uh, in the in the leg, uh, in the parliament in the Indian parliament. Um, uh, and those bills, um, broadly speaking, I, I don't know the nitty gritty of it, but broadly speaking, uh, are talking about the uh, the minimum protection that was awarded to the farmers uh, in India. Uh, it, uh, the bills um, uh, somehow is taking that away. Uh, and a uh, lot of concern uh, about it and um, a lot of concern, especially within the uh, farming community and as we know uh, you would have the same experience in Pakistan as well uh, that the agriculture is the backbone of Indian economy and uh, so a lot of those once those bills were as soon as they were passed uh, uh, there was uh, opposition started happening um, uh, and uh, since November of 2020 the farmers have been protesting near the capital the Indian capital uh, and thousands thousands in the uh, and November is uh, uh, we know is one of the coldest months November December January coldest months in India uh, braving the uh, the weather braving the all the uh, uh, I would say oh, all the odds uh, these people are these farming uh, uh, community is protesting and that includes our older uh, uh, our elders our brothers, uh, a lot of women representation there, a lot of youth. Uh, I would say this is uh, in in my recollection uh, ever. I have never seen a protest so large, uh, protest so big, protest that has gone on for so long. I've never seen in my, uh, uh, like um, I was born in India, uh, raised in India. And I, in all my time there, I've never seen something like this. And uh, so this has taken, um, uh, obviously, with the diaspora here in, in British Columbia, a lot of connections with that community, a lot of their family members are sitting in the front lines. So a lot of concerns raising out of it. And we see uh, uh, the representation here every day. Every day there, is a, there are groups of uh, protesters here in Surrey. They are in Vancouver. Uh, standing and making making more about talking about awareness and uh, asking for a peaceful resolution. Um, so there are a lot of concerns uh, that, um, and especially with the images that we have seen in the recent days uh, coming out of India, uh, it is concerning, not for, uh, I can say for my constituents, but for myself too. Uh, it pains me to uh, 
see these protests going on for so long, but what we, uh, I would say the provincial government, uh, uh, usually it is not their jurisdiction to talk about international issues, but Premier Horgan has taken a very, very strong stand on this because he has heard from so many of us, so many of the MLAs have gone and talked to Premier Horgan about the concerns that MLAs are hearing from their constituents. So uh, according to, uh, listening to all of us, he has written a very strong letter to the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to uh, do uh, put some, uh, like talk to his, uh, uh, asking Justin Trudeau to talk to the international allies uh, doing this intervention because it is a federal jurisdiction. So asking them to do it and uh, hoping for a peaceful resolution to the situation. Yes, agreed. And, and it goes to, even your your background with labor unions and and really standing up for people's rights like human rights and and maybe please talk about that you're you're because you have a lot of background and 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 track record in that space uh, uh lobbying for, for 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 workers rights and human rights uh that is uh as i said like that is um it just comes uh, i don't know uh how it came but i've always always stood up for uh, workers uh, or for people who were oppressed. We talked about in the beginning as well. And uh, in my role as a, uh, as a trade unionist, that's what I used to do, uh, do the grievances for the uh, workers, um, but also like just fighting for their rights. Um, like uh, uh, we know uh, that in this age and time, the workers are still exploited. Uh, in Canada, we have like a lot of protections, especially when uh, not just uh, protections through the labor code for the with the uh, 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 even the organizations that are that don't have the protection of the union. Uh, the government protections are there. The labor force protections are still there. Uh, but I I have always uh, what I feel is a uh, lot of people can speak for themselves, but there are a lot of people, uh, brother, that who don't have the capacity. Who, who don't have the resources, who don't have the voice to speak for themselves. And I always think that those are the people who always need the help. Uh, uh, I have spoken about the human rights um, uh, uh, situation in different countries. Um, and uh, I've talked about a lot, I've talked a lot about Islamophobia. Uh, and um, a lot of times people ask me like, Rachna, why do you talk about Islamophobia? You are not a Muslim yourself. And, uh, and I would say that you don't have to be a Muslim to talk about an issue that is a human rights issue. Human rights are human rights. And uh, what I feel in today's age and time, uh, it is the Islamophobia that has, um, uh, uh, like I see the, uh, especially since 9-11, uh, how it has become uh, such a, like, such a, I would say such a real, stay, uh, real face of bigotry uh, uh, all over globally. It is not just, uh, um, I would say just uh, in North America or it is in the Asia, uh, uh, South Asian subcontinent. It's all over the world. The kind of fear that was created after against Muslims after 9-11 and how an average Muslim has suffered because of that. Uh, not having experienced it myself, but just looking at it. And uh, you mentioned about uh, uh, the hijabi women and the oppression that they faced. It is, uh, so many stories have come forward about that. Like just how you are wearing a hijab and the oppression that you feel and uh, the kind of bigotry that you have to experience because of that, just what you are wearing. And uh, uh, and just getting that right to wear that. Like uh, 
how you are judged uh, just because you are wearing a certain uh, uh, clothing. And uh, so for me, it is uh, very important. I have always talked about the woman's right also, but then I also talk about the woman's uh, right to choose. If a woman wants to wear a hijab, she has every right to wear it. I have no, uh, uh, like if nobody, I don't want anybody telling me, uh, Rachna, what you should wear. I don't expect anybody telling a woman wearing a hijab that she should not be wearing a hijab. Just because I think uh, I'm not wearing it, it doesn't mean that she does not have the right. If she ever feels that she doesn't want to and she doesn't want to wear it, that's her choice. We, a uh, lot of times what I've seen is that, especially as a Western society, we think that we uh, the, uh, the Western society has the right to tell people, to make people more civilized. We don't. And uh, uh, the, uh, the Western society does not have this, um, uh, it shouldn't be their, I think, prerogative to go and tell the whole world what they should be doing, how they should be, what they should be wearing, what kind of uh, ideas that they should be adopting. As a civil society, if there's something wrong in within their system or within their culture, it is the society itself has to evolve and find out the solutions for that. They don't want this external uh, uh, interruptions or uh, uh, pressures from outside. And, uh, and this is what I see Islamophobia as, like thinking that uh, Muslim culture is different, that we can educate them. The similar kind of mentality, what they did with the indigenous populations, with the residential schools, that they can somehow tame them. They can, uh, 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 they can uh, bring, uh, uh, they can tame them in their own way or then taking their culture away. We, nobody has that right. And uh, uh, the history has taught us that, but still we know, we see that systemic discrimination that we see within our systems. That is the, the hangover, the colonial hangover that we have still have, and it is imbibed in our systems. It is, it is projecting in different ways, in different kinds of bigotry that was not seen a few years ago, but now we see in different ways. So standing up, uh, and it is not just for my own community. I will stand up for farmers uh, as I have stand, stood up for my Muslim brothers and sisters. It does not mean that I'm a Punjabi and that's why I'm standing. Uh, it is not, you don't have to be Muslim to stand up against Islamophobia. You don't have to be indigenous to speak against indigenous uh, racism that our indigenous brothers and system, sisters face every day or uh, being an ally in the Black Lives Matter. You just have to be an ally, that's it. You just have to be human. You just have to understand that pain. If you have that, I think, um, uh, and that is that uh, it is all about my work about anti-racism also, that it is not just the governments who will be doing this work. And uh, it is all of us, if we have that allyship, we have that feeling of allyship, we, if we have stood up for anybody uh, and, uh, and we need to, we cannot be just bystanders. We cannot, we, we cannot expect the governments to do everything. We as a community have to stand up for our brothers and sisters for any injustice that we are seeing around us. And uh, this is what I was taught from very early on. This is what I hope that my children have learned from me. This is what I am hoping that after this podcast, people do that reflection, not just standing for myself or not just standing for my own community, just standing for human, humanity. And, and, and you are right, and, and, and especially when it comes to somebody's culture. So although 
Uh, I am Muslim, but my family's from uh, Pakistan. But historically, hundreds of years ago, our family's from Halwara, which is near Amritsar, and we can trace mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years of history. So we share the same culture, but the religions may be different. And you know, in one family, not everybody's beliefs are the same in terms of their political views or social views. And in a similar way, we know uh, Muslim women it's their choice no one can force anyone yeah. to do if that's they want to follow that expression of faith that's their choice that's their decision and and uh, nobody has the right to force anybody to do anything and 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 i think what the general public is not aware is that it's their choice of the the women to do that as an expression of their their faith and what they understand or believe about the faith and i think in respect of everyone's faith and and just like in the Sikh community to 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 wear the beard and the turban and, and all the other uh, requisites of the faith it's the choice it's it's the personal choice nobody's for to do it for a lifetime how can somebody be forced to do that for a lifetime it's their belief their choice and 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 nobody's forcing them absolutely and uh, i really want to uh, talk about like lot of preconceptions that people just assume that a woman who's wearing a hijab uh, she's not a uh, 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 she's uh, she's <laughs> she does not have access to education. I've seen some ex uh, highly educated women. I have known I have friends uh, who are physicians who wear hijab, and uh, it is uh, it is their choice. And they are very very progressive women. Uh, they are uh, their ideas. They are very empowered women. A lot of times we think that hijab wearing hijab it is somebody somebody might have forced them to wear it. But it is like they are completely economically independent women, empowered women who have made this choice. And I think it is their choice. Same with me. Uh, uh, like uh, if uh, I'm wearing something and uh, 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 it is it is by choice. And uh, if I'm wearing my traditional outfits, I left India 20 years ago, but I still love to wear my traditional outfits. Um, it is, uh, uh, I, that doesn't make me less empowered. I still like, uh, it is my cultural um, uh, identity that I really want to preserve. And uh, I have every right to do that. And so do every woman who wants to, um, uh, whatever they want to wear. And uh, a few years ago, I remember there was a huge controversy about niqab uh, here in, in Canada. And at, the, at that time also, I said the same thing, uh, like a niqab uh, is uh, how many women wear that? I, I don't think even 0.2% of the Canadian population wears that. Uh, but for me, for all any political party to come and say that you cannot wear it, how right is that? Like and now, every, and everyone now has to wear masks, and nobody's <laughs> yeah. objecting to wearing masks. So it's it's almost like uh, it's 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 a uh, 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 kind of sophisticated racism uh, mm. to to basically say, oh, it's not our values. But then when it comes to our health, oh, okay, everyone has to do it. It's by law. So it's it's an, it's it, you can see the injustice in certain ways of of certain political rhetoric. But mm. now. 
as this is Black History Month, and, and I wanted to thank you again for participating in a program tomorrow, celebrating Black lives. So the Black, Muslim, uh, the Black Muslims, as well as the greater Black community of Canada has a rich history of Canada. And, uh, and in our event tomorrow, we, we have uh, members that are Muslims, that aren't Muslims, that represent what it's like to be a Black person in Canada, which is very different, even though, it, so you, uh, it, it, there's 12 countries in Africa that are Muslim majority. So the experience of religious discrimination, but then discrimination based on your skin color. As soon as you walk out the door and literally before we got on this call with you, we were, one of the speakers was talking about, uh, you know, what he was going to discuss on the program tomorrow was uh, uh, discrimination in the workplace. Uh, because as Muslims, our, our uh, holy day is Friday, the Jummah. Mm -hmm. and, to, to, and it's mandatory to go and pray the Jummah prayer. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of times Muslims face problems with employers to get that 30 minutes or one hour to, mm -hmm. to go do the prayer at the mosque or the masjid and come back to work. And, and a lot of Muslims say, we'll give the extra time afterwards or before work, we'll make up whatever time. But uh, a lot of times employers don't give the ability for the Muslims to actually take that time out and, and observe the prayer. And a lot of Muslims are afraid to even say it because they're afraid of possibly losing their job or losing that shift because, mm -hmm. uh, because they don't necessarily want to rock the boat. And mm -hmm. so that, that is another issue that, that he will bring up on, on tomorrow's discussion. But uh, because this is Black History Month and, and the Black community, again, a very important part of Canadian society, um, with the province's work, with your work, uh, for the Black community, maybe we can just talk about some of the community initiatives specifically for the Black community that, uh, that the province is working towards. No, uh, I think uh, a very, very important topic and I'm glad you bring up. And, the, and you also brought about the intersectionality about the black people who are Muslims. So they are uh, uh, like uh, oppression, uh, but like it is uh, um, uh, uh, like uh, more oppression happening. So that's where the intersectionality that uh, uh, being a Muslim these days is uh, 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 how oppressed the Muslim communities are, uh, the kind of oppression they are facing and the blacks, uh, uh, the oppression they have faced for centuries. And uh, uh, so when that oppression combines, the kind of trajectory it creates. So very, very important topic to discuss, really looking forward to the event tomorrow. Uh, but uh, Black, uh, uh, what we have seen, uh, uh, like a lot of times when we talk about the Black uh, communities, we just think south of the border and all the issues related with the Black population, the oppression, the marginalization, we just think that that's where that happens. It does not happen in Canada. Definitely, we have a much smaller population of Black um, uh, uh, community, uh, less uh, smaller representation of that community here in Canada. So that's why those numbers don't come out in open. But we have seen, uh, as uh, we have talked about the anti-Indigenous racism, uh, anti-Black racism is very, very prevalent, and uh, just like anti-Muslim racism. And um, so uh, it is very important uh, to talk about the oppression that this community is going. So Black History Month is, a, uh, is, a, is definitely to reflect on that, uh, uh, definitely uh, a time to recognize the contributions that the Black community has made not just in British Columbia, all over Canada, but also to recognize the barriers that this community is facing, just even in this day, age and time. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, like how the, uh, like the whole global uh, scenario changed with the movement that we saw last year after the 
murder of George Floyd and the, how the emergence of the Black Lives Matter, the whole movement, I think it has changed the lens. It has just changed how people were seeing racism, how they were seeing bigotry. It just uh, created a new lens. Uh, racism always existed, but how it brought the racism to the forefront. So I really, really appreciate this grassroots movement for bringing that awareness. And uh, but the, the work does not stop just with the Black History Month, recognizing one month. It is like a, a efforts that we need to do. Uh, uh, Black History Month, we recognize the province proclaims, but much more needs to be done. And that's why uh, in my role, I will be sitting with these communities, with these organizations, looking at like the barriers, looking like the barriers they are facing, whether it can be, it is with the opioid crisis, it is a barrier with the housing crisis, it might be the barriers like the over-policing uh, uh, that we are seeing of the Black populations. Um, so all these things have to be taken into the context, like how as a system, how we can bring the changes in the system. Uh, we are at this time reviewing the uh, uh, Police Act. Um, um, I sit on the committee that is reviewing, uh, uh, doing that review of the Police, uh, police Act. Uh, and that thing is coming out uh, 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 a lot about the over-policing of our indigenous and the black populations. So we'd be hearing from a lot of stakeholders uh, about the barriers there, uh, like uh, what needs to be done. And uh, I'm there to listen. And I'm uh, 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 what I can say is after not, not just listening to them, but also bringing in the changes, whether those can be the legislative changes or the at the community level changes that we need to bring uh, to break that, that, that cycle of systemic discrimination that this community has faced for far too long. Agreed. And, and I, I know we only have a, a few more minutes before we wrap up. And the last item, uh, Mary Ellen Trupont and the uh, report that she did about uh, Indigenous uh, racism in the healthcare uh, setting in, in hospitals and, and uh, certain assumptions uh, and even employees that are of First Nations descent, the, the type of discrimination that they face and, and perhaps uh, obviously our First Nations brothers and sisters to, to talk about that and, and how the province can, can work uh, to, to, to address this specific issue as well. Uh, really sad report, and, uh, um, uh, but also an eye-opener for all of us um, and also very happy that the province is taking a very strong stand about it, um, uh, like doing the inquiry into it, like uh, finding out like what can be done to resolve, uh, to uh, break those barriers. Uh, but this is, um, when that report came out, uh, uh, it just, as I said, it was an eye opener, but it has uh, opened us to like many, uh, uh, like has made us aware of the issues that we thought uh, that the organizations that would be equal for everybody, but it is not. And that's why when we, I was talking about the COVID uh, situation and how it has disproportionately affected certain communities, and that also brings it to forefront that it is very important at this point to collect the race-based data. Because right now we have this report because we were collecting the indigenous data, but we don't have like any information about other communities being disproportionately affected. Uh, by this racism uh, within our healthcare sector or within other other institutions. So that is, uh, 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 when these reports come, they are very disheartening, but they are also an opportunity to bring in the policy changes that are required. Uh, uh, and uh, 
So I'm really hoping for the change that is going to come with that, uh, the leadership that uh, Mr. Dix is taking on this, um, uh, with this report and the, uh, uh, we already, they have already started the process how to resolve this, uh, but also uh, uh, that this does not is uh, this is just a little part of uh, we haven't seen the full picture yet. We there's still lot unsaid. There uh, uh, there's lot many communities that have uh, that are still facing that racism that has not come out in the open. So it's very important to take that out also, and uh, hopefully in the coming months when we have the capacity to collect that data, we'll have more information about like how other communities are marginalized or oppressed, and what kind of policy needs to uh, uh, policy work needs to be done to resolve and uh, break those barriers. Well, thank you for explaining that. And we really appreciate you taking your time out and really uh, sharing your, your insight and your work uh, with our community and looking forward to continually working with you on, on the good work. And again, thank you again for joining us and see you tomorrow for the, the, the Black Lives event. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. It was such a pleasure hoping to connect with you very soon. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much.